Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Happy Fourth of July. Uh, thanks for taking time out of your holiday, as Jeff and Chris said, to be here this morning with us or watching us online. Uh, grateful that you've joined us uh, for worship. As Jeff was planning out the preaching calendar for our Sermon on the Mount series and we saw that uh, 4th of July was on a Sunday this year. We decided that we'd, we'd stick with our Sermon on the Mount series, but do something a little bit different. Um, instead of just moving on to Jesus's next section in the Sermon on the Mount, we thought that we would look at uh, one or more of the Psalms in the Old Testament that are related to Jesus's sermon and that Jesus seems to be drawing on in the Sermon on the Mount. And there are several places where Jesus in his sermon is clearly um, quoting or alluding to or, or just echoing the Psalms in the Old Testament. So for example, Psalm 3711 says, the meek shall inherit the land, which is almost exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 5 in the Beatitudes. Psalm 24 talks about the person who is pure in heart is the one who can be in God's presence. And Jesus says uh, something similar when he says the pure in heart shall see God. And then maybe the most obvious example is all of Psalm 1, which starts out saying, blessed is the man, and then just goes on to describe this blessed man, which is exactly what Jesus did in the Beatitudes to kick off the Sermon on the Mount. And so any of those Psalms would have been a good choice as one that would provide us with some background information, would help inform our understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. But a couple of months ago, uh, Chris emailed me after one of the uh, 6.30 Psalms men's group meetings and said that I should, yeah, there's a plug for that if you don't already go. Chris uh, is plugging that. Um, he said that I should look at Psalm 111 and 112 together and consider um, studying those for this uh, July 4th Sunday. And the reason that those Psalms stood out to the men's group and made them think about the Sermon on the Mount is because Psalm 112 is just like the Sermon on the Mount. It talks about this blessed person. It talks about light in the midst of darkness. It talks about um, how we uh, treat our finances and just how someone lives a life of flourishing in the world. But then what really stuck out to the men's group was the way that Psalm 111 fits with Psalm 112. And you may or may not know this, but the Psalms are not just a random collection of individual Psalms. There, there's many different genres of Psalms and different authors and different subject matter, but they weren't just randomly organized. There's intentionality to the way that they were organized. And so a lot of times, several Psalms in a row will be talking about the same thing or they'll have a similar subject matter. 
And you know this is the case because you'll get to some psalms that repeat the same phrases throughout them or they have similar structure. And the most obvious example is uh, probably Psalm 42 and 43, which are two famous psalms that end the exact same way, saying, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And these psalms have the same subject matter, they end the exact same way, so it makes sense that they fit together. Some scholars even believe that these, this was just one psalm that was broken up into two later on. So as we're reading through the psalms, we should read some of these psalms together to get a more full understanding. And so as we come to Psalm 112 that we're going to look at, we see this direct connection with the Sermon on the Mount, uh, this way of flourishing. But then we also see that Psalm 111 is directly connected to Psalm 112. And there's two reasons that we know that. The first is because they start out the exact same way. They both say, praise the Lord. But then even more significantly is they're both acrostics in Hebrew. So an acrostic is a poem where the next line starts with the next letter of the alphabet. So it's not super obvious for us, but in, if you were reading through the Psalms in Hebrew, you would know when you got to Psalm 111 and Psalm 112 that these two Psalms go together. And so here's why I think that's a really big deal for us this morning and why uh, it's so significant in our study of the Sermon on the Mount. Psalm 112, the second psalm in the pair, is just like the Sermon on the Mount, as I've already said. It talks about this way of flourishing in the world as God has told us to live and intends us to live. But Psalm 111 is all about the greatness of this God. So in other words, if we look at these two psalms together, what I think they're teaching us is that before we can decide to live life God's way, this way of flourishing, we have to know whether or not God is even worthy of our trust, if he's qualified to tell us the best way to live in the world. So the Sermon on the Mount and Psalm 112 calls us to live this specific way. It promises us a life of flourishing as a result of living God's way. But what that assumes is that God is worthy of our trust and knows the best way for us to live in the world. And here's the problem. For many of us, the goodness and trustworthiness of God is just an assumption that we've always had. And the reason that's true is because many of us grew up in Christian families, and for some of us, that was even here in the Bible Belt, surrounded by Christian friends, where everyone is a Christian. And so, because of that, from a young age, we just always assumed that God existed, that going to church was a good thing to do, and even if we didn't always do it, we assumed that living God's way was probably the best way that we should live. But because we grew up with those assumptions, many of us haven't really stepped back and just looked squarely at God and said, is this God even worthy of my trust? Is he, is he even truly qualified to tell me how to live? And if we don't stop and do that, then there's several things that can happen. Uh, the first is that we could become legalistic. So this is one of the main problems that Jesus is combating in the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking to religious people, or talking about these religious people who were doing all the right things on the outside, but who inwardly didn't have a heart transformed by the love of God. So in our context, this, this might look like someone who uh, goes to church and reads their Bible and prays and doesn't commit any big sins, but they only live this way because it's what they've always done and they can't imagine doing anything different. 
It's not because of a heart that loves and trusts God. Another possible error that we can make if we just assume God's trustworthiness is that our faith can become empty. So in our context, this could be someone who believes in God. Maybe they go to church, maybe they don't. Maybe they read their Bible and pray, maybe they don't. They think the gospel sounds good. They think Jesus died for them. But because they don't have really any good reasons for believing that, it doesn't really have any effect on their daily lives. It's just an idea that everyone believes, but it's not something worth, uh, worth giving their lives to. And so both of these things, legalism or an empty faith, are huge problems in a culture like ours. Even if uh, you don't really identify fully with one of those camps, these, both of these problems affect all of us throughout our lives. And so I think that it's important that we look at these two psalms this morning. Um, the issue with that kind of way of living is that we're trying to live out this way of flourishing without looking at Psalm 111 and saying, is this God even worthy of our trust? So that's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, first thing is we're going to look at Psalm 111. We'll see six reasons why God is worthy of our trust. And then we'll look at Psalm 12 and see five areas of our lives where we can trust God. Uh, yes, you heard that right. This is an 11-point sermon. That was a 10-minute introduction, but I promise we will be moving very quickly. Uh, if Jeff was preaching an 11-point sermon this morning, I'd be worried we might miss the fireworks tonight. But I promise not only will we make it for five fireworks will make it for lunch as well but let's get going psalm 111 verses 1 and 2 the psalmist says praise the lord i will give thanks to the lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation great are the works of the lord studied by all who delight in them so the psalmist starts out saying, praise the Lord and thanking the Lord. And then what we'll really start looking at is verse two and following where he says, this is why I'm praising the Lord. And in verses two, three, and four, he talks about uh, God's work or his works. And in English, that's the same word every time. But in Hebrew, it's actually three different words that refer to different kinds of God's work. So here in verse two, this word generally refers to God's work of creation. So the psalmist is saying, great is the creation of the Lord. Great are the creative works that God has done. This verse is actually written um, atop one of the uh, labs at Cambridge where they study physics. It's an acknowledgement that this world, the universe we live in, is a great work of God. And so that's our first reason why God is worthy of our trust. It's because he's our creator. From the sun to the ant, the mountains, the ocean, you and me, every single thing that exists has been created by God. And this really is the foundational point to any of the, the rest of these two psalms. Because if the earth came into existence by random chance, then there is no God who is worthy of our trust. There is no way of flourishing that God hands down to us. And we might as, all, we might as well just all do whatever makes us happy because there's nothing else to it all. But hopefully you're here this morning because you believe that God exists, or at least you're exploring whether or not God exists. And if God exists, and if Psalm 111 is right, that God created all things, that his work is a great work, then that makes God worthy of our trust. What else would we trust in other than the one who created all things? 
I don't know if you like to play board games or video games, but imagine that you get an opportunity to, to play this new game that's just been invented, and uh, the inventor of the game has invited you and a friend to come play it with him. And as you're getting everything set up, you decide that you really want to know what the best way to win this game is. And so you ask your friend what he thinks the best way to win the game is. Instead of asking the inventor of the game, who's right there, who knows the ins and outs of how it works and could easily tell you the best strategy. It wouldn't make any sense to think that your friend would know more than the designer of the game who, uh, it, when it comes to who you can trust as to how to play the game. And since God is the creator of all things, he's the creator of this world that we live in, then the same thing is true when it comes to the way we live our lives. We have access to the playbook given to us by the creator and designer for the best way to live a life of flourishing in the world. How often do we look to every other place to see how to live our lives? We look at the Instagram influencers or what our friends say or what celebrities say instead of to the one who created it all and has told us how to live in his creation. So God is trustworthy because he's our creator. The next reason God's worthy of our trust is because he is for us. Verse three says, full of splendor and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever. So this time, the word for work here speaks more about God's providential acts in the world. He's talking about the way that God is working in the world through our individual lives. And the psalmist describes these works as full of splendor and majesty, what God is doing in us. It makes me think of what uh, Paul says in Romans 8.28, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. God is working for us on our behalf. He, he wants what's best for us. He's doing something majestic and splendid in us. And this doesn't mean that because God is for us, nothing bad will ever happen to us. We all know that's not true. The, the psalmist isn't saying God's worthy of our trust because he protects us from everything bad. He says he's worthy for our trust because he's proven over and over again that he's working for us to bring goodness out of the evil circumstances. He's making all things new. We'll come back to that in a second because that is directly related to the next thing um, that the psalmist says. So verse four is, he's caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. So this time that word wondrous work is really just one Hebrew word that's referring to God's saving acts in the Old Testament. The psalmist calls these works gracious and merciful, and he says that these things are remembered. So he's probably thinking about things in the past where God was their savior and where God is still our savior. He's probably thinking about things like God delivering Israel out of slavery in Egypt, or maybe the things of David's life that we have been studying over the past year and a half, where uh, David sins with Bathsheba, but God delivers him, restores him, or David is delivered time and time again from his enemies like Saul and Absalom. Maybe the psalmist is thinking of how um, Israel faced constant conflict and exile, but how God, because of his covenant with them, delivered them over and over again. Uh, verse nine fits in with this same theme because he says, God sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. 
in the Old Testament and, and, and now, our God is a God of redemption, which is a great name for a church, by the way. Uh, over and over again in the Old Testament, we see through the sacrificial system, God redeems Israel from their sin. Through uh, battles and, and trials, he redeems Israel from their enemies. We see God acting and redeeming and saving his people. And as the psalmist is thinking about these things, at the end of verse 9, he's, he's led to say, holy and awesome is his name. But the reality is for us, we have even more reason to say that. Holy and awesome is his name because we know about the greatest act of redemption. The act of redemption that all of those things in the Old Testament were just a foretaste and were pointing to. We know that God sent his son to die for us, to deliver us not just from our uh, physical enemies, uh, but from our greatest enemies of sin and death. And this is why this connects back with the fact that God is for us. Because if God would send his own son to die for us, if God is our savior, surely that means he's trustworthy for our lives here and now, doesn't it? That's exactly what uh, Paul says just four verses after he said, all things work together for good. In verse 32, he says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So in other words, what Paul is saying is if you look around at your circumstances and you are doubting that God is really for you, you're doubting that God is really working for you and bringing goodness out of this, then remember what he's already done. If God allowed his son to die for you, which is the hardest thing anyone could ever do, why would he not go ahead and do the easier thing and before you're good, still here and now. God is trustworthy because he's our savior. Let's keep going. Verses five and six it says, God provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. So the fourth reason God is worthy of our trust is because he's our provider. The first thing the psalmist says is that he provides food. This is why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, give us today our daily bread. And up until recently, most human beings recognized their daily dependence upon God for food. No matter how good you tilled the soil, no matter how good your seeds were, if it didn't rain or if it rained too much, like it has here in the past couple weeks, then you weren't going to have any food. God had to provide your food. And for us, we should be instructed by that. Just because we go to the grocery store and buy our food and have no idea where it even comes from doesn't mean that God isn't still our provider. He could snap his finger and it would all go away. But not only does God provide our daily food, the psalmist also says that God provides us with an inheritance. Now for Israel, they didn't really experience this fully. The Old Testament talks a lot about this inheritance, and then the New Testament picks up on this again as a fulfillment of what those things were just pointing to. So Israel got the promised land as an inheritance, yes, but then they were constantly in exile from it and returning to it and longing for a greater inheritance. Uh, Psalm, Psalm 2 picks up on some of this same language and it's talking about Jesus and says, you are my son, today I've begotten you, I will make the nations your heritage, it's talking about inheritance, and the ends of the earth will be your possession. And then Jesus himself picks up on this inheritance theme and the Sermon on the Mount says that the blessed person will inherit the earth. 
Paul also talks about inheritance. He talks about the, the greatness of our spiritual inheritance we have in Jesus and our uh, physical inheritance that will be ours when Jesus returns and we reign in the new creation with him. And so I think what the psalmist is saying here is that God is worthy of our trust because he provides our most basic needs like food, but he also is going to lavish us with more than we could ever hope or imagine one day as we reign over all things with Jesus. The next reason God's worthy of our trust is because he's trustworthy. Uh, verse seven says, the works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. We won't really spend time here. It's kind of just a summary, but the psalmist is saying that what God does, the works of his hands, and what God says, his precepts, are both trustworthy. So we can trust him. Last reason why God's worthy of our trust is because he's unchanging. Uh, we see this in verse eight, but really it's all throughout the psalm with the repetition of that word forever. Verse three says his righteousness endures forever. Verse five, he remembers his covenant forever. Verse eight, his precepts are established forever and ever. Verse 10, his praise endures forever. God is worthy of our trust because he's unchanging. If God wasn't unchanging, it would be really hard to trust him. Uh, if he was constantly changing what the way of flourishing was in the world, then we wouldn't know the best way to live. If he was changing how gravity worked or something like that, it would be really hard for us to function in the world. Yet in the midst of a place where everything around us seems to be changing, God doesn't change. And that's good news for us. I love this uh, nighttime prayer that comes from the Book of Common Prayer. It says, be present, O merciful God, and protect us through the hours of this night, so that we who are wearied by the chances and cha changes and chances of this life may rest in your eternal changelessness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. God is worthy of our trust because he never changes, and therefore those of us who are wearied by all of the changes that we experience can trust in him. So there's six reasons from Psalm 111 why God is worthy of our trust. He's our creator, he's for us, he's our savior, he's our provider, he's trustworthy, and he's unchanging. And then the psalm ends by inviting us in to trust in this God. Verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have a good understanding. So who are the wise and understanding in the world? It's not the smartest, it's not the oldest, it's not the most powerful or the most wealthy. It's those who fear and trust in this trustworthy God. So now as we look at Psalm 112 and see the similarities, uh, so, yeah, Psalm 112 and see the similarities with the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we'll see why God's trustworthiness leads us to be able to trust him. Now each of these five things we're gonna look at could easily be their own sermon or even their own sermon series, but the good thing is most of these have, have been addressed in the Sermon on the Mount or will be, so if you've missed some of those sermons, you might wanna go back and listen, make sure you're uh, here for the rest of the series, but what I really want us to see this morning is how we can trust God with these areas of our lives because of who God is. There's a connection there. So Psalm 112, verse one, says, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights 
and his commandments. So again, the psalmist starts out the same exact way. He says, praise the Lord. But then instead of moving on to describe the greatness of God, he tells us about the greatness of the life of this man of flourishing who lives in response to God and who trusts in God. So the first thing we see is that this this blessed man fears the Lord and delights in his commandments. So we can trust God with our obedience. I wish we could just go back to talking about how good God is and not have to talk about uh, obedience to God's commands. But the reality is this kind of obedience that the psalmist is talking about isn't legalistic, hypocritical obedience that we all hate. Um, It's not just adherence to some ancient, outdated religion like much of the world thinks, but it's obedience to the way in which the creator and designer of the universe who wants our good has called us to live. It's obedience to the way in which he's told us this is the best way to live in the world. And when we look at obedience like that, why would we not want to live this way? As Christians, we uh, try to obey the Bible's commands because we believe that in the Bible we have the playbook, the cheat sheet, the insider secrets to the best way to live in the world given to us by the one who created and design the entire thing. Therefore, we can trust the commandments of God and seek to obey them. We can also trust God with our families. Uh, Verse two says, his offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. The psalmist says the family that trusts God will experience blessing. Now, it might be easy for us to read this verse and think about material blessing, and he's going to get there in a minute, but we think of mighty family, and we think about the most powerful family or the richest family, but the psalmist is probably thinking about these mighty Old Testament families, the the mighty men like Moses or Joshua or David who weren't mighty because they were the most impressive or the richest. They were mighty because they trusted God, and they seek to live their lives according to his way. And the psalmist says that teaching your family to trust God and entrusting your family to him is the way of flourishing and blessing in the world. So let's trust God with our families. Third thing we can trust God with is our finances. Uh, We see the psalmist talk about this in verse three and also in verse nine. He says, wealth and riches are in his house. His righteousness endures forever. Then verse nine, he's distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. And we talked about money last week. It's gonna come up a little bit again next week as we talk about uh, anxiety. So I'm not gonna spend a lot of time here, but I do wanna read uh, from 2 Corinthians 9, which is probably the most uh, famous passage on giving in the Bible where Paul talks about a cheerful giver. And Paul actually quotes Psalm 112 there. So I don't think we should just skip over that. So 2 Corinthians 9, Paul says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. Here's Psalm 112. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. 
He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way in order to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. This is really a remarkable passage. I wish we had more time to look at it, but Paul's talking about some of the same things that Psalm 112 says. Paul says that God will provide for our needs. God might even provide way more than we need, but no matter how much God has provided, the point of it all is in order to bless others and be generous with what God has given. And as we look back at Psalm 111, we we know that we can live this way because God's our provider. So because God has provided everything we have, then it makes sense that we be generous with it and and be willing to give it to others as well. And because God's provided everything we have, we know that we can give and still trust that God is going to continue to provide for us and meet our needs. Because God is our provider, we can trust him with our finances. Next thing we can trust God with is our actions. Verses four through six says, light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. So this is similar to the psalmist talking about our obedience in verse one, but I think it's a little bit different because I think what he's doing here is contrasting the way of the righteous with the way of the unrighteous. And I see that with with this imagery of light in the midst of darkness. He's talking about doing business generously, which was not a normal practice of doing business in the day. I think verse 10 is probably connected here as well, which says the wicked man sees it. He sees the way the righteous man is living and he's angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. And so I think he's setting up this contrast in order to kind of combat some objections that people might say, well, if I live differently than everyone else, if I live according to this way of flourishing that you've said, if I'm generous and merciful and gracious, then I'm not going to be successful in the world because that's not the way of success. And yet what the psalmist says in verse six is, the righteous will never be moved. He'll be remembered forever. He doesn't say that you will be successful as the world counts success. You might not. But what he says is worldly success and even the world itself is passing away. But success in God's eyes, righteous living in relationship with God is forever. So even if it looks like living according to God's way isn't getting you where you want to go, remember that God is worthy of your trust and his way is the way to flourishing in the end. All right, last point, and this this might be my favorite section of these psalms, so hang in there for a few more minutes. Uh, Verses seven and eight. says, he is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Are you afraid of bad news? I am. And why wouldn't we be, right? We live in a world where bad news happens all the time. We lose our jobs, our car or something in our house breaks down, family members get cancer, tornadoes or hurricanes destroy homes, global pandemics come out of nowhere, and every single person that we love is going to die one day. It's a 
pretty bleak situation. There's bad news all around us. And so how can the psalmist say the blessed person is not afraid of bad news? Is this just wishful thinking on his part? No, it's because he says that this person trusts in the Lord. But he's not saying that he trusts in the Lord as if God is this magic genie who is granting our wishes through prayer or if God's this distant deity who created the world and then, but doesn't really care about us, which is two of the most common views of God today. Instead, it's because he trusts in the Lord who's our creator. He trusts in the Lord that's for us. He trusts in the Lord that has saved us and that is providing for us and that is trustworthy and unchanging. It's because God is all of these things and only because all of these things is he able to say that God is worthy of our trust no matter whether the news is good or whether the news is bad. The psalmist says that this person, this person who lives according to the way of flourishing, trusts in God, has a firm and steady heart. He will not be afraid. And he doesn't say that he can have this firm and steady heart for a couple of hours or for a couple of weeks. He says that until he looks on triumph, he will make it through the end until the bad news is over. And triumph could be healing for the sickness. It could be a new job. It could be an answer to that prayer that you've prayed over and over again. Or triumph might have to wait until Jesus returns and makes all things new. But what isn't in question is that triumph will come for God's people. And we know that's the case because he's told us that's the case and we've just looked at all of these reasons for why God is trustworthy and so we can trust him. We don't have to be afraid of bad news. We can trust God with our circumstances. That's what we all want, isn't it? As human beings, we all have uh, these same deep longings. We don't want bad news or difficult circumstances. We want comfort and peace. We want to belong. We want people to like us. We want to experience a lot of things and have a lot of things. We want to live forever, even though we know that that's not gonna happen. Every single human being is seeking those things and we're all seeking them in so many different places and they're all ultimately letting us down. Our world gets more depressed and anxious every single year. Uh, my wife and I were in Mexico a few weeks ago and we saw this sign, we've got a picture of it, um, outside of a shop across the street from where we were staying. If you can't see it, it says, what you seek is seeking you. And I didn't ask the store owner, but I'm pretty sure that what they meant by this sign was something like, the universe is on your side. Uh, if you're seeking happiness, just, just keep seeking because happiness is out there seeking you as well. And of course, it sounds good. It's a fun thing to put on a sign, but it's nonsense, isn't it? We can seek happiness and we should seek happiness, but there isn't this cloud of happiness out there floating around trying to get to us as well. In fact, the opposite is actually more true. Because we live in this fallen world, difficulty, sorrow, brokenness, hardship, and sadness are more likely to show up on our door than happiness. But when my wife Madison saw the sign, she said, hey, for us, that's actually true. And she was right. As Christians, what we seek is actually seeking us. We seek peace, we seek a sense of belonging, we seek provision for our needs and riches beyond what we could ever hope or imagine. We seek to live forever 
And we have a creator, savior, and provider who is trustworthy and unchanging and who is on our side seeking us as well. We have the one qualified to tell us how to live our lives. He's qualified to meet those needs and satisfy those longings. He's the only one qualified to do so. He's worthy of our trust and he's inviting us to trust him. Let me pray for us. Father, we confess that you are worthy of your trust and that we long to follow you in this world, but it is so hard in a world where everything else is crying out for our trust. So we just ask that you would help us by your spirit to trust you, to trust in your goodness, and to trust in your love for us. Help us to live lives of flourishing in response to who you are and what you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. In just a few minutes, we'll uh, take communion together as we do each and every week. Uh, but before that, we just want to give you a minute or two um, to uh, silence and to reflect uh, on, on God's word this morning. So there'll be some reflection questions, um, then Jeff will come up and lead us in communion in a minute. Thanks again for joining us for this redemption sermon. For more resources and information about Redemption Church, visit redemptionokc.com and follow us on social media.